Good afternoon, everybody. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this, the sixth in our summer series of Rare Book School lectures. I'm very happy to acknowledge the fact that today's lecture is sponsored by the Southeast chapter of ABAA, and a number of people are in the audience who helped make this possible in underwriting today's lecture. And I might add, the exorbitant appearance fee that Ken Carmiel demanded from our school. Because, because he's like that. It's also the case that those of you who are not Rare Book School students look decidedly fresher than those of you who are Rare Book School students. And that suggests to me that you're being driven appropriately by your instructors. Our speaker today, Ken Carmiol, was graduated from University of California, Santa Barbara, but even before his graduation in 1970, he already had begun, 68, sorry, he had already begun, that's true, because he spent two years in the Peace Corps in between. Um, he had already spent two, year, uh, two years selling books chiefly to the UC Santa Barbara Library. So he found an inside track, and he ran with it. In those days, he got paid, I'm reliably informed, the enormous sum for finding appropriate books of $5 for every book he acquired that was taken by the UC Santa Barbara Library. In 1968, 67, five bucks was a lot of money. Um, already he was a book maven. Already he was subscribing to AB Bookman's Weekly, going to fairs, um, and, and he had the bug. Um, with typical generosity, he then went away to Central America to join the Peace Corps and um, do his bit to make the world a better place. And when he came back, um, deeply unwisely, he thought that he might go to law school. But he was disabused of this notion, and um, people told him about library school. And, and by Ken's own admission, he had never heard of library school. But he thought, wow, school where you could think about books? This is cool. So. Ken is a graduate of the library school at UCLA. And while he was there as a starting student, he began to work for the famous Dawson's Bookshop. And after he was graduated, what do you mean? Heritage Bookshop. Heritage. I listened to the film account in your ABA biography today, and it says Dawson's. Well, you would know better than I, wouldn't you? <laughs> So I am, happy, I am happy to be corrected by the source. And here's an example of why you need not to rely on secondary research. <laughs> we staged this whole thing. He then went to work full time after graduation and in 1976 started his own business um, as an independent bookseller moving to Santa Monica where he is now in 19... He currently carries a small inventory of very select books in his operation of about 2,000 books, 
but with about 4,000 reference books to research and add value to those 2,000 books. Um, Ken is not only a noted California bookseller, he's also a notable philanthropist, and most, much of his philanthropy has been directed toward the book community. Uh, to just name some things he's done for his alma mater, UCLA, he uh, has endowed an annual lecture on the history of the book trades given every year at the Clark Library. He's endowed another lecture on archival studies. He's given money for student scholarships and another fund for book purchases. And that's just at one of the many institutions that he's been helping. He's held many distinguished offices in the bookish community, serving, for example, on the National Council of the ABAA three terms since the early 70s, which is a long time. Um, he's on the board of Cal RBS and um, on the Book Club of California, director of the Book Club of California. Um, please join me in welcoming a, a really great citizen of our community, Ken Carmiel. Thank you, Michael. I think I'm going to take my glasses off. I know I shouldn't brag, but I will, because the truth is, uh, I have the finest, the most spectacular, and the largest collection of the Abbey Press, not only in the United States, but in the entire world. I know you're all amazed. <laughs> I should also state that I have the only collection. <laughs> Over the past 35 years that I've been collecting this short-lived American publisher in New York City between 1900 and 1903, I've never met another collector or have heard about another collector. Actually, it's been kind of nice to collect something without any competition. Now, I suspect many of you are asking yourself, why does Ken collect the Abbey Press? Well, it's a very good question one that I've often asked myself, and I really don't have a good answer. I think it simply has been an exercise in pure collecting, trying to bring together all of the imprints of this one publishing firm, kind of like having an album of Lincoln pennies and trying to fill in all of the dates and mints. Let me digress for a minute just to say a few things about my book business and buying and building collections. Presently and for the past 20 years, I've strongly emphasized early printed books from the 15th to the 18th centuries, but for many years before that, I had a very general stock, including modern books, literary first editions, art, fine press travel, pretty much all collectible subjects and all periods of printed history, really anything that looks saleable. I enjoy really lo looking at everything in the world of, of books. I've always especially enjoyed working with collections, so, so I've always been on the lookout to acquire collections, and over my 40 years in business, I've been very fortunate, fortunate to purchase many. Some were already well-formed and quite comprehensive and ready to resell, either as a whole or to price out the books individually, uh, perhaps to produce a catalog. 
For example, uh, many years ago I purchased a very fine collection of 18th century French illustrated books, about 300 titles, the Oscar Ladner collection. I had anticipated printing a catalog of the collection, but luckily for me, many of these books were quickly sold to one of my neighbors, the Getty Research Institute in Brentwood, so the catalog never happened. Another wonderful collection I acquired was an exceptional group of 80 early printed books between 1520 and 1750 on chiromancy, or palmistry, and metoscopy. That's the study of the significance of the lines on our forehead. I wish I had these uh, books back today. Working with these strong collections offered me a great opportunity to learn about the subject matter thoroughly through collating the books, researching the books, describing them, and finally selling them. On many other occasions, I've purchased a group of books on one subject or one author, kind of a starter collection in my mind, and then decided to build upon it to form a more comprehensive collection, which would then eventually be offered for sale. For example, I've done this with books on missionary activity in China in the 19th century, and with a collection of books by the American author, now largely forgotten, Richard Harding Davis, to which I added some presentation copies and some manuscripts of his short stories and, and autograph letters. I've built up many other collections in this way over the years, including my collection of the Abbey Press. So now we're back to Abbey. <coughs> Around 1980, I was offered about 100 Abbey Press titles by the rather eccentric San Francisco Bay Area dealer Stuart Teitler. His business was called Kaleidoscope Books. Stuart was an expert on 19th century American fiction. Also, I've been told he was, uh, he was a very good salsa dancer. And, uh, and he was also considered quite odd in that he said that he read every book he acquired. He didn't collect the Abbey imprint, only the fiction titles. I believe he had some very good library customers for Wright Fiction. That's Lyle Wright's three-volume bibliography of American fiction uh, before 1900, which does include the year 1900, but Abbey was mostly post-Wright, 1901, 1902, and 1903, and Stewart wasn't having an easy time selling these books, uh, and as often, as often was the case, he needed some money. I really didn't know much about Abbey the publisher. I had no idea how many titles they'd published, but thought it might be fun to try to build upon Titler's accumulation, uh, maybe add another 50 or more titles, and then in a few years offer the collection for sale. Well, that was over 35 years ago, and I'm still at it. Well, I guess it's time to tell you something about the Abbey Press. Uh, first, uh, I'll show you some typical Abbey titles, uh, and you may start to get some idea of their business model. The first book is a piece of early marijuana literature, The Stoner Family. No, that was a joke. It has nothing to do with marijuana. It is a work of fiction by that well-known author, Samuel Fulton. The second book, in a decorative cloth binding, is The Iron Hand by Howard Dean. No, not the former governor of Vermont, but the novelist. The subtitle of this book is A Story of the Times Founded Upon Department Store Life. 
<laughs> Dean, in fact, worked in a department store and wrote this novel based on his fascinating experiences. <laughs> the third book is The Stranger, a work of poetry by Matty Balch Loring, which contains her most famous and well-loved poems, such as The Flight of the Bats and In Daffodil Time, one of my favorites. The next book is, uh, is a tale entitled Two Waifs, or the autobiography of Christmas and Ocean. It's the story of two donkey brothers. And you can see there on the... That, one, is, one is Christmas and one is Ocean. And this was written by Eliza Berryman Howard. Now, what these four books have in common, very typical of Abbey titles, is that they are the only publications of these writers. They were one-book authors without any critical recognition, practically unknown to the world in their day and certainly today. I have two other Abbey books to show you now, a few more later. Uh, the first four that I showed you are quite representative of about 85 or 90 percent of Abbey titles, but about 10 or 15 percent, I would say, are titles that are collectible today and in some demand due to their subject matter. First, I've chosen a cat story, as anything about cats seems to be collectible. <laughs> uh, you can't tell, but actually this is in the, is, it's a, stamped in three different colors. Uh, this is a tale of a cat written by herself, <laughs> by Margaret Kern, in a pretty decorative cloth binding. And finally, number six, an early detective novel, Thompson the Detective by Julius L. Hempstead, published in 1902, just a few years after the great detective stories of Arthur Conan Doyle, The Adventures and the Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, which came out in 1892 and 1894, also in a nice decorative cloth binding. About half of Abbey books are rather plain, half are bound in decorative cloth. Another interesting point about Abbey Books is that at least 40% were authored by women. I've, I've shown you six books, a very small sampling of Abbey titles, which are found on an extremely diverse number of subjects. In addition to a great deal of fiction and poetry, there are titles on marriage, evolution, stories for children, books on many different aspects of religion, part particularly Christian fundamentalism, plays, natural history, even a title, I'm not sure, if, here it is, including a, a title on mosquitoes. <laughs> Just to name a few of the, the bit of the diversity. Well, you've now probably figured out that Abby was a vanity publisher. In fact, Abby was the first American firm publishing principally as a vanity publisher. It should be noted that the publishing term vanity wasn't used at the turn of the 20th century. It wasn't until the imprints of the Vantage Press and the Exposition Press in the, in the late 1940s and 1950s, with aggressive advertising in American magazines, that the term vanity was coined. In 1900, all references to this form of publishing would simply state, published at the expense of the author. 
Abbey did have American precursors. In the 1890s, Boston had the Arena imprint and New York had F. Tennyson Neely. But both firms published as regular trade publishers as, as well as in the vanity mode. In the case of Neely in the 1890s, the firm had its offices in the same building as Abbey Wood after it was founded in 1900, 114 Fifth Avenue, and in one article about Neely in Publishers Weekly, the two principles of the Abbey Press, which I'll be talking about shortly, were called advisors to Neely, leading one to conclude that they learned the fine points of the vanity publishing business through their association with Neely. There isn't a great deal of information about Abbey, as the business records were entirely destroyed in a suspicious, probably arson, fire at their premises in February 1903, after being in business only three years. The business ceased with this fire. I've never been able to find a single journal article on the Abbey Press. There has literally been nothing written about the press, other than a few notices in Publishers Weekly. What I have learned is the business was established in partnership by the Reverend Carlos Martin, and Charles F. Rydell. Martin was born in America, and uh, uh, Rydell was, uh, was born in England, uh, emigrated as a young man to the United States. Both were authors and editors uh, of numerous books. In the case of Martin, he'd previously been a pastor at a church in Manhattan and also a church in Newark, he wrote mostly biographies. Uh, he wrote biographies of Wendell Phillips, John Brown, and other American notables of the 19th century. In all, he authored about 10 books. Charles Rydell authored six, all on various nonfiction topics, two of which were published by Abbey. After the fire, both men were charged with grand larceny. I guess the authorities couldn't prove the arson charge. The grand larceny charge was for receiving a large quantity of book cloth and immediately reselling the merchandise without paying the supplier. There was, a, there was a trial, and both men were convicted, and as a result, spent some time in prison. I'm sure they must have been rather interesting characters. They did create a very successful business that published 420 titles in three years, an amazing number of books in just 36 months, about 12 titles published each month. In fact, in 1901, Abbey was the sixth largest trade publisher in America with 160 titles that year. More books published that year than major firms such as Harper & Brothers or Little Brown & Company. By the way, Macmillan was the number one American publisher in 1901 with 692 titles. Abbey represented themselves to the public as a normal trade publisher, which is typical of vanity firms, regularly taking out ads in journals such as Publishers Weekly, trying to get orders from the book trade, the thousands of new bookstores around the country. Also, they often included a trade catalog at the back of their books titled Some Publications of the Abbey Press, and these would include prices and ordering information. Martin and Rydell were definitely prone to hyperbole in promoting the press. Their ads would state, with agencies in London, Montreal, Paris, Mexico, Melbourne, 
Cape Town, Calcutta, and Berlin. For some reason, I don't believe this is true. In all, they had seven seven different printed catalogs of their books for sale. The sixth catalog was called the 20th, and the the seventh catalog was called the 50th. One, One of their ads stated that the title offered was so much in demand that a tenth printing was needed before publication. Again, a a very unlikely event. (laughs) Abby's exact uh, publishing scheme is presently unknown. I have never found an Abby contract with one of its authors, but it must have been similar to a contract found by Roger Stoddard of Harvard University Library that was used by the Arena Firm in Boston for their vanity books. This contract stipulated that the publisher would, would, would retain a very large part of the edition to be offered for sale. In fact, Arena only gave 25 copies to its authors, offering the rest for sale, the proceeds to be split 50-50 between the author and the publisher. Arena's contract stipulated an edition of 2,000 copies. Usually, uh, this would be split equally between cloth and paper-bound copies, but sometimes 1,500 in paper, 500 in cloth, or even 1,800 in paper, 200 in cloth, depending on the wish and the pocketbook of the author. In the case of Abbey, I've never seen a copy of a book, a uh, paper-bound Abbey title. I don't, I don't think they were published in paper. The final price for a specific book would include all printing and binding costs, with the variables being the number of pages, uh, whether or not there were illustrations, and the type of binding. Certainly, there would have been a greater expense for a decorative cloth binding over a simple cloth binding stamped only with gold or black lettering. I still hope to one day turn up a contract for an Abbey book. Later this week, I will be visiting the Library of Congress and looking through the archive of William Jennings Bryan. Bryan was probably Abbey's most famous author. They published his book, The Commoner Condensed, in 1902. I'm hopeful that his contract with Abby may turn up. I've also learned that there are three other American institutional libraries with other parts of Brian's archive, which I will also pursue. Another possibility for turning up a contract may be with the papers of the eccentric American author and artist Louis Elshemius, or Elshemus. Um, Louis uh, wrote, uh, had Abby published five of his books, fiction and poetry. Uh, He he isn't a well-known name in American art history, but in the 1970s, a PhD PhD dissertation was written on Elshemius and then published by Abrams, uh, art publishers, making Mr. Elshemius Abbey's second most famous author. (laughs) At this point, I haven't located his papers. I don't even know if they exist, but I remain hopeful. The Smithsonian's Archives of American Art may turn up a lead. Perhaps someone in this audience will one day help me find an Abbey Abbey contract. Please give me a call if you do. (laughs) I'd like to read a quote from Roger Stoddard's article on the Arena Firm of Boston in the papers of the Bibliographical Society of America defining the Vanity Press. I have the off-print. It was published in 1982. I'm quoting... The Vanity Press is the asylum of the literary fool 
who must pay to see his reactionary, if not retrograde or insipid, writings into print. Vanity books are the folk art of American publishing, and like folk art, most examples perish, worthless or laughable, and are never exhibit or exhibited or studied. The Abbey Press and Broadway Publishing Company, vanity houses that flourished after 1900, are examples of this sinkhole of letters that awaits discovery and exposure. Well, on to the actual collecting of the books, the mercantile part of this talk. Now, some of you will be shocked to learn that there was no internet in 1980 <laughs> when I first started this collection. I'm not sure exactly the year that Al Gore invented the, the internet. Uh, he did, didn't he? But in 1980, there was no commercial internet activity. It's amazing to think that no one had a website, an email address, not even a fax number, no OCLC, no A-books, no Via Libri, no Amazon, eBay, etc., etc. I think you get the idea. So how did I acquire books for my collection? Well, I visited bookshops in and around my home in Southern California and whenever I traveled around the country. I got on the telephone. I wrote letters. I talked to booksellers and let them know my interest in Abbey titles and gave them my address and phone number and hoped that one day I, I would receive an, uh, an offer of a needed title. The biggest secondhand bookshops were the best for scouting as Abbey books could turn up in many different sections of a shop. Luckily, most Abbey books could be quickly spotted as they had a uniform AP and, oops, uniform AP in a circle at the bottom of the spine. Shops, shops like Acres of Books in Long Beach, California, Holmes Bookshop, they had two, one in Oakland and one in San Francisco, Shorey's in Seattle, Warren Brock's in San Diego, larger general shops, these were always worth a visit. Also, certain booksellers were especially on the lookout for me. Henry Hurley in New Hampshire and David Sachs in Oakland, California were dealers who regularly turned up Abbey titles for me. The best way to build a collection in 1980 was to advertise uh, in the AB, I guess I'll go back, <laughs> uh, was to advertise in the AB Bookman's Weekly, the most prominent trade journal in America. It had display in classified sections and subscribers could pay for a books wanted ad. When I placed an ad, I would always include wanted books published by the Abbey Press, New York, 1900 to 1903. As most Abbey titles were written by unknown authors, mostly with a single book to their writing career and not written on a highly collectible subject, I would typically receive a postcard with an offer of an Abbey book for sale between $1.50 and $10. I, I don't believe that I ever paid more than $20 for an Abbey title in pre-internet days. The real question that most, most booksellers had when they acquired an Abbey book and put it into stock was, will this book ever sell? Or is there anybody out there who's likely to buy this book? Clear, clearly, most Abbey titles are scarce number today. Many have not survived well over the past 115 years. 
really you have to ask yourself, why would these books be saved from one generation to the next? Well, let's uh, flash forward to the internet world of 2015. Unfortunately, all of the shops I mentioned have closed, every one. Sales are more and more generated from online listings. The internet provides an immediate reading of how many copies are currently available for, for sale, that is, the scarcity or the supply end of the supply and demand equation. This information wasn't known in 1980. We, the trade, often called books scarce, uncommon, rare, etc., but we really didn't have a true understanding of the number of copies in the marketplace at any given time. Well, today, finding no other copy currently online immediately sets off bells and whistles in the minds of many booksellers. Aha! I have the only copy for sale, and if you want it, you're now going to have to pay for it. But these, these dealers don't really stop to analyze the true demand and ask who's going to want to buy this book. Who really cares if, in fact, it may be the only one for sale? So oftentimes the books that I regularly paid $10 or $20 for in the past, I now, now find for sale at $50, $150, $250 or more. The true demand for these books hasn't changed over the years but prices have changed. They have increased considerably due to a false reading of what the current internet record means when no, other cop when no other copy is in the marketplace. The true meaning is that you have a scarce and uncommon book, but one, sadly to say, that has very little demand. Nevertheless, recently checking Abe Books, I found 129 Abbey Books listed, and 50 of these are priced over $50. I'm sure you all know that a great many books today, with little demand and with many copies found for sale online, can quickly be reduced to a $1 or a $2 book. So to me, a book price $50 or more is one that should have some clear demand. But this is not always the case. Here are a few typical listings of uncommon Abbey books currently looking for a buyer. We have uh, Stella Gilman's A Gumball Lil Lily and Other Tales. There's no other copy online. It is a, uh, apparently a novel published in 1901. Uh, the bookseller named The Bookshop in San Jose, California tells us it's rare and it is asking $250. Uh, we, the next one is Cordelia Powell Odenheimer's The Phantom Car uh, Caravan. Uh, it's the only, only book by this author. Uh, it's the only copy online. Uh, Dog Star Books in Lancaster, Pennsylvania tells us it's quite scarce. And it's $220. We have J.A. Bowles, Under Reckless Rule. Apparently a study of local government by Mr. Bowles. It's the only book by this, only book by this author. And it's the only copy online. Zochi's Bookstore and Gallery in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico <laughs> will let us have it for $425. Uh, also, the uh, book that I showed you just a minute ago, The Poetical Works of Louis L. Shemius, I just noticed that there's a, uh, one copy currently online for $710.
It's frustrating because I know that the dealers offering these Abbey titles will very likely still own them 20 years from now, and that I am probably the only buyer. I've sometimes communicated with the dealer, explaining that, that the book they have is a vanity title by an unknown writer, and no one cares except me. So please be realistic. It has worked from time to time. I've had dealers reply, okay, what do you want to pay for it? To which I usually reply, $20. I could probably be pushed to 30 Other times I've been told to go jump in the lake. Or they've even used stronger language. As they were certain that they had a very special, rare book that was worth every penny of their $150 or $350 asking price. As I said, it's frustrating. So the quest of Abby still, uh, collecting Abby still continues. I still look online every few months and occasionally find a title to buy. I'm sure that many people think I'm crazy collecting the books of the Abbey Press, but I don't care, I can take it. And I've had fun building the collection. I now have 300 of the 420 uh, books Abbey published, but it's taken me 35 years of looking Sadly, I should say very sadly for me, I don't believe I will live long enough to find the remaining titles. But I am hopeful that one day some very wise librarian, perhaps someone in this audience, will contact me and ask, Ken, will you please sell us your Abbey collection? <laughs> Thank you very much. But of course. There are a number of experts on the Abbey Press in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ken, a question. So, do you ever buy multiple copies of the same title? Uh, I have a, a couple that I, yeah, uh, like what, maybe um, I'll, I'll see a presentation copy or something or something interesting about it. Uh, there are a few titles that went into second and third editions, uh, believe it or not. And uh, very, 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 very few. But I, I, I will buy the uh, second or third, yeah, the different, a different edition. Yes. Ken, I know Ken from Los Angeles. He asked me not asking embarrassing questions, so I don't think this is going to be embarrassing. Sure. I'm a book collector. I bought great books from Ken. He knows what he's doing. One of the problems with the internet, which you kind of dealt with differently than I do, and I'm sure librarian acquisitions people. Negotiating, a lot of book dealers get really huffy, as you notice. If you walk into a bookstore or book fair, you can look really interested as a potential buyer and then kind of feel out whether you can make it the next negotiation. But the number of books I've just not even asked about because they're so pricey to me, what do you do? Yes. I think this is, do you have any opinions about that as a seller? Yes, well, certainly, yeah. I, I think you always have, when you're trying to get a better price, uh, buying anything, just just be nice. Just be nice. Say, you know, it's something I'm really interested in. Uh, I don't have it in my collection. Uh, is there some room in your price? Uh, can we discuss it? If you're, you know, if you're going to act like a jerk and just say, oh, this book is priced, this is way overpriced and, you know, uh, your, your price is crazy and, you know, but of course they want to buy it. 
Uh, anyway, just I think most dealers re- respond quite well to just uh, they you know want want your business and they want to develop uh, your you know client uh, customer as a customer in the future. So. And for myself, of course, it's different as a dealer. I'm talking dealer to dealer with these people, and um, you know, which which uh, a little bit different. But that would be my suggestion. I think you should, you should bring that up to any any bookseller. You know, what 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 is your best price? But the same thing might work a little bit. The way you're saying is that you put something up, especially if it's unique. How many years do they wait before they think, huh? That's, yeah, a lot of things do hang up, hang uh, hang around a little bit too long. That's for sure. And, uh, yes, Mr. Tabor. I haven't. Oh, you know, well, Abby. Well, if uh, the Abbey contract is similar to Arena, Arena would pull the, I think they were electrotype plates for the book, the, the printing plates, if there was a great demand, if there was some demand for the book to, to reprint it using those plates. Uh, the same plates as the, you know. but as far as the, um, uh, I, I suspect they're cancels. I really haven't looked. Yes? Well, they're, they're, they were mainly, of course, trying to sell to the bookseller. You know, I think in 1900, right, you bought, you know, from uh, the bookstores around the United States. They did have some subscription agents, also. I uh, I found a letter uh, on Abbey Stationery talking about that, uh, and uh, they would uh, try to take orders for the books. Did they produce catalogs of their titles? Yes, they would put them at the back of the book. There were this, these seven. They were, bound in. they were bound in seven different catalogs. Also, publishers' trade list annual uh, would have their annual catalog in the you know uh, listed and uh, publish. I have a file of every Abbey ad that, uh, that appeared in Publishers Weekly and other places. Yes. So, so with, with great respect to Roger Stoddard, who was a magnificent bookman. Once upon a time, the major art museums of the world looked on folk art as risible and, and worthy of contempt. And now that folk art is prized. And um, if the analogy sticks, doesn't it make sense to collect this low end of the publishing market, even as it, it now we recognize makes sense to collect dime novels sure. or penny dreadfuls? Right? Because right. once upon a time, no respectable library would co- collect a penny dreadful. No, no, no respectable library in the world would have collected copies of Titbits, mm-hmm. the magazine for boys. Um, but this, this, is, this is now, you know, extremely prized kind of thing. And, and so I, I, I object, as, as much as I esteem Roger yes. Stoddard as one of the great American bookmen. I, I think that his, his his words in 1982 perhaps are already dated by that. Sure. But certainly by 2015, I, I, 
I think that we can have yeah. a rather different attitude and say, this is a significant part of American publishing history. This is a significant part of the construction of authorship. This is a significant part of, of a number of things that could build some sociocultural history from well, this, and that there's research value in this kind of collection. Well, I'm very hopeful, of course, because I, <laughs> I uh, do hope at one point to get that phone call. But, you know, it really is kind of an interesting window into the literary aspirations of common uh, uh, folk, American men and women of the time that couldn't uh, interest uh, the, the, the basic the trade publishers, the big trade publishers, wouldn't consider their, their manuscript, their work. And, uh, but there's something about these folks that they, ha they needed to write a book and they needed to get it published. And you can't say, certainly can't say that about uh, everybody in society. And it's kind of a, I think there is something to look at here. Uh, I'm not going to be doing that, but I think, you know, maybe some, some PhD students uh, down the uh, road will, will do something. Yes? Do you know anything about, or can you tell us anything about how these authors found Active Press? Um, That's a good question. Um, they didn't do, the most of the ads that I have seen, uh, were for their books for sale, but I do remember that uh, I think there was some that said manuscripts, uh, you know, wanted. Or uh, I think Abby also uh, was very um, oh, opportune for a lot of the New York regular trade publishers. The, the opportunity for them to say to somebody, uh, thank you for your submission. It's not for us, but you might want to talk to the Abbey Press people. Uh, I'm sure the Reverend Carlos Martin perhaps talked to church groups. Uh, they, as I said, they do have they had these subscription agents which were trying to represent their product, and perhaps they also talked up their uh, plan to get your manuscript uh, produced into a book. But those are just guesses. I do not. No, uh, I uh, I'm good at perusing them. I look at the pictures. Uh, no, I, but no, I there wouldn't be a great deal of reason for me to be reading all the text. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, of course. So is this the case? With Absolutely. That's yes, and also you know well, you wonder about accounting uh, uh, procedures because they were supposed to split fifty-fifty, uh, but that was you know fifty-fifty after all expenses. That would be uh, av advertising, promotion, mailing. Who knows? You know, it's uh, who knows what else. Uh, I think w part of the selling job uh, to these authors was that you will get back a significant part of your cost from the sale of all the books that, you know we're going to promote that book and it's going to be you know you're going to you're going to get checks in the mail whether they did i don't know yes yes that 
I, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I just know what I know about Abbey because that's I've been collecting them, and there was a very large percentage of women authors. Uh, but whether other vanity publishers, that'd be an interesting thing to look into. I, I don't know. There was another question. My question was. Much, Thanks. Uh, Right. Yeah, and and I you know I heard about this, read about the fire. Publishers Weekly is very good about uh, legal cases and notices and stuff like that. But you'd think that there would have been some warehouse where they would have had all their back stock of copies and uh, also these printing plates and uh, all. And yet uh, they just talked about I don't. It, Maybe they were all housed at that 114 Fifth Avenue address, but I don't think so. That was a, that was a high-rise building that a lot of publishers were in, in Manhattan. Thank you. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. No, they would they were being jobbed out. You know, they they would make, they would contract with the commercial printers in, uh, in New York and binders. Yes. We're, do we know who 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 did them? None of them have uh, initials. They're not signed uh, as you typically would find in a uh, you know a signed decorative cloth binding. I think they were using you know journeymen. Uh, they did make a point of you know using union. Folks in their, you know, some one of their ads, uh, but um, but the, some of them are pretty nice, pretty nice, and I know that some of the collectors of decorative cloth bindings do pick up Abbey titles. Yes. Uh, what's the story with the fire? Uh, <laughs> why do we think it was arson? Uh, I think that. Uh, I, I I don't know. I. I why, why specifically? I think I think they owed a lot of people a lot of money, but I'm not sure how uh, uh, how that exit, that fire exit, would would have benefited them. Uh, they may have had insurance. That I mean, the typical thing is that if you're in exactly years, you have significant insurance. Some of the insurance may be for and stuff, but then you have a fire, and then you collect. Yeah, on, so. uh, you collect on the insurance and you meet the creditors. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You get out of business. And, and this is a, a pretty notorious scheme in, in a lot of businesses, um, which is why insurance investigators often come in. And there may be a record. If you look in the New York State Attorney General's office or something yes. like that, there may be more information. Be more information yeah. to have. There is a seminal article by... And I'm Maslin on 18th century publishing, in which he says, from evidence of the Boyer printing firm, one of the main London firms, that 10% of the works published for the Boyers in the 18th century 
were funded entirely by authors. So that printed for the author is a long-standing tradition, and Ken Carmiel has thrown great light on this for us in the early days of the 20th century. Please join me in thanking him. There is a reception in the Rare Book School suite to which you are all most cordially invited. <laughs> <laughs>